We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And in a very busy and exciting month with actual new Doctor Who, we are here to talk about some old Doctor Who, but not classic era Doctor Who, but not new series Doctor Who. We're talking about middle Doctor Who, Death Comes to Time. Middle Doctor Who. I'm good, Dave. I've never heard it called middle Doctor Who. I like that. I just made that up. I don't know if it'll catch on. We'll we'll see. But we are going to talk about a very unusual piece of Doctor Who history, Death Comes to Time. But before that, we've got our news, we've got our mini topics, and we've got some really good listener feedback. We're recording this the day after... The Legend of the Sea Devils aired, so mm-hmm. that's that's where we are in our timeline. Rob, how are you? I'm very well, Dave. I've been just decompressing from that episode and putting our hot take out and, and then going on to read what everyone has had to say. It's been very interesting the past 24 hours. It has. It has. But before we go any further, we like to start with anybody who is kind enough to give us a Apple podcast review. Someone has, Rob. They certainly have. This is Ray Casement, who I'm not familiar with from Twitter or anywhere. So Ray must be one of our listeners out there in the great blue yonder who uh, doesn't social media with us. And Ray has said, a good and informative podcast. What I have noticed, however, is there is a distinct lack of focus on the Hinchcliffe era. We need a really good podcast on seasons 12 to 14 and also touching on elements of 15. Unfortunately, too much Pertwee and what happened in the 80s. We also have too much on the new series. Come on, guys, give Tom the credit he deserves as the best ever. That's a really great review. It's always good to hear that we're good and informative, and it's good to hear feedback, because I know Mm. one thing that we do work on, Rob, just to pull the curtain back a little bit, is is, is we do actively try to sort of balance different eras of the show, new, old, different parts of classic, different mediums. We, we, we do legitimately try to balance that. And if we're missing something in the mix, that's that's good feedback. And I'm not shocked to hear that perhaps we haven't done all that much Hinchcliffe because, A, it hasn't been voted for in any of our polls when we've picked mm. our seasons. Um, but also, the Hinchcliffe and the Tom Baker era is, I think, the hardest to talk about because it's so good. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's true. It might just be you and I gazing at him and I was saying that was that was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Next story. Yeah, that yeah, was great. Yeah, story one. after that was good great. One. Yeah. Doctor, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> but, you, but you bring up a good point that we do when we do the season reviews, and I'm not sure Ray knows this. If he doesn't follow us on Twitter, we always put them out to a vote, and I'm always throwing Hinchcliffe stuff in there, and it never gets voted for. So, power to the people. Uh, that's why we haven't done it so much, Ray. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, yep, maybe we do need some more time in the mix. That's good feedback, Ray. But stick around because at the end of this podcast, we'll be announcing another vote. And who knows? Maybe Philip Hinchcliffe will be along, Dave. Wish us well. Maybe. (laughs) Now, news. We are back into a long break between one episode of Doctor Who and another. But some news has come out of Legend of the Sea Devils. 
it has. We've got some overnight ratings for it. Now, of course, you always must take the overnights with a grain of salt, especially in this day and age where people watch on catch-up, etc., etc., etc. We're well-versed in that, dear listener, if you're going to write in and tell us that. Yes. However, Dave, we do have a figure. It's not a good one, is it? It's not great. In fact, it's the worst overnight Doctor Who has ever had by a margin of 700,000 viewers. Yes, and that was 2.2 million, I believe. Mm, It is. However, it placed 11th. That's true as well. Yeah. So so my feeling is Easter weekend. Mm-hmm. I know from my social media accounts and looking at my friends in the UK, it was a very pleasant Easter weekend. Yeah. Was just no one home. It could be. You know, when we get the uh, the plus seven figures and the, the plus, I think, 30, like the monthly figures, we'll have a better impression. Over the past series, Flux and the specials so far... They tend to pick up about a million in catch-up after that month has gone by. That's been typical. So this could go up to about 3.2 million, which isn't a disaster, but uh, still not great either. I reckon it's going to cross 3.5. You reckon? Yeah? I, I reckon no one was home. It was a beautiful, sunny Easter long weekend, and I think there'll be even more catch-up. Well, let's in a month's time, let's have a look at that. I think it might just make the million, 3.2. You think 3.5. Okay. Okay, deal. We'll come back to that next month. Done. When we did our hot take review of Legend of the Sea Devils, which is out right now, listeners, please check it out. Yes. We mentioned, of course, the Next Time trailer, which a lot of people have been focusing on, but said that we would not cut into our hot take review and uh, we would save our analysis of that for our next monthly cast. Here we are. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think, Rob? Well, Dave, I've gone through, as you as you can see, because I sent you this little synopsis, I, I went through and looked at each scene in the, in the trailer so we could sort of know everything that's in it at a glance. And look, it begins with a quote from Jodie saying, nothing is forever, no regeneration, no life. We then move to some bronze Daleks. Yes. Uh, we then get a repeat of that line that we had at the end of Flux. Beware of the forces that mass against you and their master... I wonder what that's a reference to, Rob. (laughs) Well, they actually show us Ashad, the Cyberman, the Cyberman who got shrunk by the Master. He's now back, or is it a flashback? Or I don't know. This is is what I took it to be. Because all of that beware of the forces that mass against you and their Master, I assume that up until that point, everything else was callback as well. So the Ashad thing was a callback to significant part of the 13th Doctor's life. Right. Um, that's why the Master changes his appearance. We've got flashback Master and then we've got upcoming Master. And so I think Ashad is flashback, not upcoming. Right. Now somewhere out there, someone has taken that shot and compared it to all the shots that have existed before and found out if it is a, an old shot or not. Um, but But my take of the way this trailer was playing was here's what's come before here are the big moments now here's the future okay well you mentioned the master and then we do have a, a shot of the master sasha dewan sans beard and he has a very toned down costume it's not that comedy joker purple and whatever it was checked costume he looks very toned down and he says this is the day you die and we see jody looking very pensive or maybe she just needs some bran i don't know but he's he's definitely back and he's looking different to when we last saw him uh, he is, he is, absolutely, in both shots, very, very different. Hmm. Then it moves into, I think, well, the the bit that just amazed everybody, myself included. We have Tegan on the telephone, 
Ace, I haven't heard from the Doctor for nearly four decades, she says. Just because it's only three decades for me, says Ace in reply. Wow, Tegan's back. So, first of all, that dialogue is terrible. Well, the <laughs> second one in particular, just because it's only three decades for me, is that grammatically correct? Could that be from a different line or something? She's not really responding to Tegan there. Doesn't sound like anything a human would ever say. Um, so... <clears throat> Last night, I went round to my parents' place and we had a family dinner for my sister's birthday. And um, over the course of things, I said to my dad, so what did you make of the uh, the new trailer? And he said, oh, what new trailer? And I said, oh, haven't you seen it yet? So we went over to the computer and got up YouTube and put in the new trailer. And I said, oh, there's going to be a couple of people in there you're going to be very excited about. And um, he sort of watched it and he got to that scene and he kept watching. And he Uh-oh. got to the next, the next scene, he said, oh, oh, Sophie, oh, that's good. And kept going. He's going, okay, so Sophie Aldrin's in. And I said, yeah, and who else? Oh, I don't know. I said, well, go back. No, yeah. pause it there. Nope. It's, yeah. it's Janet Fielding, Dad. Oh, yeah. This is a guy who's been watching Doctor Who since he was um, 11 in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't recognise Tegan. I've seen a few reactions like that online as well, actually, to be honest. Uh, yes, which is no disrespect to Janet. She's aged wonderfully and looks fantastic. But she does look extremely different to peak 80s look Tegan. Oh, especially with the bobbed haircut. I mean, Janet often has the Tegan-style haircut, even in the modern era. But for some, well, for some reason, she's got the bob haircut, I guess, because she likes having a bob haircut at the moment. And it does just make her look different, to be honest. Yeah, I think if you were somebody who had watched a lot of DVDs, Blu-rays, documentaries, behind the sofas, all that sort of thing, and you were very used to Janet Fielding and also Sophie Aldred as they looked contemporaneously you would instantly get them. Uh, let's face it, a lot of people don't watch those things, so they probably wouldn't get them. And and for an average casual viewer, it just would have been two guest stars that they wouldn't recognise going, okay, there's there's two women in this that have a machine gun, that's fine. Yeah, because that is the next frame. They blaze away with automatic weapons, Dave. Uh, yeah, so look, that's very exciting. I think everyone's keen to have them back. Uh, more thoughts when we get to the end of the summary, but yeah, after that, it's sort of all, all things from the 30th Doctor's era. Yeah, Kate Stewart gets pushed along by some Cybermen. I wonder if she'll have more of a role than in Flux, where she didn't really get or, to do much. If we're really lucky, she'll be converted into a Cyberman. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Uh, John Bishop gets into the orange TARDIS spacesuit that... Gosh, where did the Doctor nick that from? That was the Satan pit, wasn't it, where he picked that up first, I think. That sounds right. About right, yeah. It looks like he's going to get sucked out of a plane or a shuttle. I thought, oh, well, we did that in the... When we first met the Master, didn't we? He sucked everyone out of a plane. <laughs> so we're retreading that territory. Vinder is back. Yes, Vinder is back. He had the, the TARDIS open behind him, so I don't know if he'd come out of the TARDIS to be pointing his gun at somebody or what the story was there. Uh, and then we saw Yaz pointing a gun inside the TARDIS. A lot of gun pointing at that point in the trailer. Uh, yes. <laughs> Something I really liked and it was hard to pause on. Ace beating up a Dalek wearing her Ace jacket. I didn't notice that. It's very brief. Oh, it's okay. so brief and it's really hard to pause on. Uh, and then when they get Rasputin Master. Yeah, what's the deal with that? Long hair and it looks like he's got blue eyes. It looked to me like the Curse of Fatal Death Master after he spent the 300 years in the sewer. <laughs> nice. So it could be a callback to that. There's a deep cut. And finally, it looks like Jodie's regenerating and shouting, yes! Or is she maybe just opening the pocket watch and the energy around her just looks similar to a regeneration? I don't know. I suspect that it will be a cheat 
and uh, they haven't put that in the trailer. But mm. who knows? Look, this is obviously quite exciting. Once again, we have a trailer that looks astoundingly good, just like we did for Eve of the Daleks and Legend of the Sea Devils. And uh, neither quite lived <laughs> up to those trailers was, I think, our view. Um, hopefully right. this one will. There's lots of speculation as to what all this means. There's lots of speculation as to... Uh, who else will be back and whether this is just the tip of the iceberg. I've certainly had some people speculate that with Ace back, we're going to get the McCoy Doctor, the Seventh Doctor back because McCoy's around, he could do it. I'm going to throw my own speculation out there that if we're reaching back into the history of the BBC and the show, you would have the first companion, Susan, turn up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we, we know that Caroline Ford is still out and about and, and fit and healthy because... Uh, our friends at Diddly Dum mentioned that she turned up to the Capitol Convention a week ago. So that's right. So she's 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 there. So Caroline Ford could turn up, and there could be others. Uh, people have mentioned the other Jodie companions, of course. Uh, will Ryan come back? We'll find out. We've got a long way to go, though. Well, we've certainly there. There have been spy photos of other actors on set, so there are certainly actors in it who aren't in this trailer. I can say that with absolute certainty. Yes. And, I think, look, Dave, my biggest takeaway from this is even in that trailer, that's an awful lot of people and potential plot to be dealing with. Ken Chibnall do it in one hour or one hour, ten minutes. I'm a, I'm a wee bit worried already, to be honest. I'm less worried about that than I am about the number of loose plot threads from the last three years or three seasons that have to be tied up. Will Chibnall just decide not to bother tying them up and just have a adventure with lots of fan service? Maybe. Well, he's destroyed most of the universe and the core characters still haven't cared yet. In fact, in the last episode, it was like, let's just have an adventure with some pirates. Yay! No no one cares that most of the universe is gone still. W- will it come back in the final episode? We have one episode left, fellas. My biggest question is, will Lenny Henry be back? Oh, yes, because he just sort of disappeared. He just disappeared, yes. Yeah, interesting. Should we move on to short topics, Rob? I think so, Dave, because we've got a lot to talk about with Death Comes to Time in a minute. We, we do. We're diving in very deep on that one. So just a brief short topic from me, and that is, as you would certainly know, Rob, and some of our listeners will know, Australia is now very much in the middle of a federal election campaign, mm-hmm. which means that my life is incredibly busy right now. Uh, and often those days, I'm not necessarily sort of 13, 14 hours solid at the desk, although some are, but there's a lot of... I need to stop and take a phone call now or I need to interrupt what I'm doing and reply to some emails now or get something done now and then I can go back to not doing that. Mm. Which means I've been watching a lot of very comfortable television over the last few weeks. Uh, Dipping into some random Star Trek episodes and I've been tweeting about that. And I also pulled out my season 12 Blu-ray and just started dipping into that because this is, as you would put it, Rob, the ultimate comfy slippers. (laughs) <laughs> just just, just settling into Robot. I can quote that off by heart, line by line. I know everything that's coming. I still enjoy it. I love it. It's fun. But I can kind of just get lost on it. And if I need to pause it, come back half an hour later, I can do that. Uh, I really enjoyed Robot. I've now finished the arc in space. And wow, that's a good story. It really is. It's It's not a showy story. It's not a wow story. It doesn't have big, exciting, life-changing moments. It's just done incredibly well. And it's so engrossing. And that whole season, you know, I'm going to keep going, work my way through it. 
end up at Revenge of the Cybermen, which is just the comfiest of com- comfy slippers. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's just been really good comfort, Doctor Who, whilst I've been very busy and not really in a position to sort of sit down with something that I need to watch properly. You know, when you watch a new thing and yeah. you want to actually focus on and anticipate it on what's going on, or if you're watching a movie, I'll, if I'm watching a movie, I like to find two hours where I can put the movie on and watch it uninterrupted, yes. not come back and forth. I, I like to do that. So I've been doing that. It's been fun. It's been relaxing. And uh, it's been comfortable. Well, I think Ray Casement will be delighted to hear you've been watching season 12. Good. Yes, hopefully Ray will be pleased to hear that. Yes. Very good. My short topic this uh, month, Dave, is I ran a very quick Twitter poll. I don't think it's even finished. It's only in the last 24 hours. Because I just had this thought pop into my head as people were talking about, you know, now we're heading towards the centenary special. And there was some Twitter scuttlebutt that the next Doctor will actually be announced soon. I'm not sure how legit that was, though. So I threw a Twitter poll up there, very short and sweet. We will see the 14th Doctor in the Centenary special. Yes, no, or other. And if it's other, people can could write in and tell us what they, what they think. But it's been quite binary for people. No, 55-7. Yes, 41.8 and other 2.5%. So let's just concentrate on the no's and the yeses. Over half the people out there, Dave, don't think we'll see the 14th Doctor in the Centenary Special. Even if we know who it is, I guess they're thinking we'll have some sort of cliffhanger where Jodie starts to regenerate. We don't actually see the Doctor. Perhaps leaving things open so that the 60th can be past Doctors or not introducing a new Doctor in the 60th. Maybe they'll keep their powder dry. I have a couple of thoughts. Yeah. First of all, I just want to note some of this speculation has come about because it was a BBC News article that said something along the lines of the 14th Doctor who we expect to be announced in the coming weeks. Is that where it came from? That's where it came from. It was a legit legit BBC News article, not just clickbait or Radio Times or something. So I don't necessarily think that the author automatically had some particular insight there but it was a bit more credible than the normal ones and so it could just have been a turn of phrase it could have been a deliberate we know that you know this is the announcement schedule so that's where that came from i'm leaning more now to us seeing the 14th doctor in the special and them coming in to film their part of the regeneration and that being cut in and Mm -hmm. i think that's going to be the case because the bbc will want to make it very clear that the show is coming back right I'm thinking of a couple of examples from history. The famous fight between JNT and Eric Saywood about the ending of Trial of a Time Lord, that sure. it was a bad thing to leave the series on a cliffhanger, as Saywood and Holmes wanted to do, and JNT wanted, wanted a proper, this is the end and we're coming back next time. But I was also thinking of when Star Trek Deep Space Nine was announced. Originally, season five of The Next Generation was not going to end with a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And it was just going to be wrapped up. And the production team thought, well, hang on, if we do that, and then we announce we've got a whole new show coming out, people might think, oh, there's no more Next Generation, they're doing this new show. So they ended with a very clear two-parter, cliffhanger, we'll be back for part two in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the show will want to do is have a new Doctor, is begin that era and make it really clear to the viewers yep this is not the end there's a new doctor we're starting all over again with a new season coming soon look the the traditionalist in me can't imagine the next doctor not appearing in the regeneration scene and then in the next story they are the doctor but i do have a funny feeling though that because it is this 60th 
that they might not throw the new boy or girl in at the deep end, even if it begins with some older doctors and then the new doctor sails into into shot halfway through and takes over. I I don't know. I mm. Maybe we'll get the 13th and a half doctor. Maybe we will. Maybe it becomes that they're going to regenerate into Hugh Grant, then we see Hugh Grant in the special, and then Hugh Grant regenerates into the special, into the Doctor, who'll then be in the series after the special. Hugh, oh my Hugh Grant, God. David Tennant, take your pick. Yeah. yeah, well, the confusion in my mind is borne out in this poll, basically 55, 45. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the known unknown. We don't even know the unknown unknowns. Indeed, indeed, uh, Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> that, that is a Rumsfeld joke, isn't it? It is, yes. <laughs> it is, yes, good, okay. I'm not losing my mind. Yeah, and so that's all, that's all. That was just a quick Twitter poll I threw out there. I thought that was a kind of interesting thing to do at the moment. Uh, yeah, look, fandom's in a really odd place right now. It's been weird to have this Easter special come out of, in some ways out of nowhere, it came around the corner really fast. Yeah. Uh, and now we have an unknown length period before we come back for another special and we don't know when the episode after that's going to come uh, we've got this enormous break between the announcement of the 30th doctor's resignation and the casting of her replacement it's it's an unusual time it's it's almost a mini wilderness era which brings me to <laughs> death comes to time yes Finally, we get to talk about this. We've had this in pre-production for a little while. Look, we have. So let's start off, Rob. Tell us in a sentence or two, what is this thing that we're about to talk about? Because some of our listeners may not have heard of it. Indeed. Uh, Look, folks, Death Comes to Time was a five-episode webcast animated adventure that ran online on the BBCI website in 2002. Now, when I say animation, I'm talking very rudimentary animation, like still still cartoon drawings and the camera moves a bit on them <laughs> or, or something very basic in the frame moves. It's not a real animation. But it was the BBC's first serious attempt to bring back Doctor Who after the 1996 TV movie. Of course... Big Finish had already been making licensed audio at this point for some years. So this is coming at a very strange time where the, the, the franchise has been farmed off, Big Finish is making audio, then the BBC starts having a crack and produces this. It then produces Real Time, which some people might know. If you ever see the Colin Baker Doctor in an all-blue outfit and they say, oh, that's the Real Time Doctor, that's what they're referring to, an, an audio called Real Time. They also made a version of Sharda with Paul McGann as the Doctor in Sharda. And they also made Scream of the Schalker with the alternate Ninth Doctor played by Richard E. Grant. So BBC had a real crack in the early 2000s at making these animated audio things and death comes to time was the first of them it was and it really was in that most wildernessy of wilderness years that that period after the 1996 telly movie because I've, I've said many times the wilderness years really does come in two halves you get mm. the one where we're still thinking doctor who could come back and we've got the new adventures and the missing adventures and the 30th anniversary and documentaries and you know th- there was always something just around the corner and then Oh, yeah. Steven Spielberg's going to make Doctor Who. Oh, his company's making... They're doing a telly movie. Paul McGann's the Doctor. Let's watch the telly movie. Oh, was that it? Yeah. And at that point, there was that real sort of sense of, look, we had our chance. The show's not coming back. And everybody slowly kind of drifted away from fandom. And by the time yeah. you get into 2001, this is five years after the telly movie flopped. 
Yeah, and they've farmed they've farmed audio off to Big Finish. They've given the license to Big Finish. You know, yeah. so y- your perception is, well, it's not coming back to TV on the BBC. So it was even a bit of a surprise that the BBC did their own audio in this case. Yeah, it really was. So from my perspective, I was vaguely aware that this was happening, but I was myself moving on from Doctor Who fandom mm-hmm. at this point. I think I went to the last con I went to for many, many years in 2001, a con up in Sydney. And, and then I think myself, Richard, and the, the, the sort of the people we've been hanging with all moved on from the local club committee. You know, I, I went off, I'd finished uni at that stage, so I was entering the workforce and kind of was moving on from Doctor Who, you know, yeah. looking yeah. for other things to, to excite me, getting into we've other things. We've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. That, that really was where I was, and a lot of people were at that stage. Um, I do remember sort of people saying, oh, have you checked out Death Comes to Time? And the main feedback being that the internet just was so rudimentary back then most of us were on dial up we were trying to get this thing off a very basic bbc site and that if you could do the sort of the four hours of buffering to get 30 seconds of dialogue you know it just it just wasn't worth the effort and Mm -hmm. uh, and most people i think just didn't bother i certainly didn't what about you rob yeah, I I was aware of it at the time. I'd been an early adopter on the internet, actually. I got on the internet in 1993, believe it or not, at uni. That was my first year of uni. So I was comfortable with getting it to work. I did have trouble, though, with the, the sort of the buffering and, and getting it to load up bits of audio with the animation and such. But I wasn't really clued in enough to really understand what I was seeing anyway. It felt like... To me, it felt like it was following on from something I'd missed. Who was Antimony? Where had he come from? Was he, oh, is he a comic character? Is he in the in the comics in Doctor Who Monthly? I, I had no one around to really tell me. He wasn't in the EDAs that I was reading. And the whole finale of the thing, I thought, was just bloody stupid. Well, for reasons we'll get to behind the spoiler curtain. So, yeah, I was aware of it. I listened to it and I felt really put off by it at the time. I thought it was this really odd thing, interesting in places, but odd. And then I sort of consigned it to the dustbin of history until we revisited it this year. Uh, yes. So I guess I'll, I'll come back to me and talk about my reaction listening to it now for this podcast. Mm. And, and my, my, my comment comes in two parts. As an artifact of Doctor Who, this was fascinating. It's it's like opening one of the pharaoh's tombs and finding something preserved from a particular era and just sort of getting a sense of how everything looked and felt and worked in this particular part of the show's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's like listening to the adoption of Curse of the Daleks, the stage play, or something like that where you sort of go, okay, this is a very particular artifact of the show. And, and having yes. it having it to listen to was a really quite interesting experience. And I think a lot of our discussion will centre around that. Mm-hmm. Judging it as a piece of audio, for the first three episodes, my overwhelming comment was, yeah, mostly harmless. Mm-hmm. For the last two episodes, I thought this is an utter, utter mess. <laughs> now, there's a couple of reasons behind that. Uh, one of which I'll mention now because you intimated it as well, Rob, and that's that it was designed to be a pseudo-animation with pictures. Mm. So mm-hmm. the audio doesn't take that into account. It assumes you're going to watch it graphically. As a result, there isn't any of that sort of, you know, that big finish audio play 
Oh, look over there, Doctor, it's one of those. Or, look, Doctor, he's doing that now. Or, let's just introduce who this person is by, hello, random named person. You know, there isn't that sort of dialogue going on there. And there, that that is a bit of a lack. And, yeah. and, and the context to it all, therefore, isn't quite... Well, it's just not there. You, you're going into it like a jigsaw puzzle without the box. Mm-hmm. Um, the second point I will reserve, because I'll get your, your reaction in 2022 first. Yeah, once more under the breach in 2022. My reaction was much the same as before, although having seen New Who now, you can sort of see bits of New Who that tie into this. Not that it's deliberate, mind you, but the whole lonely god of the RTD era. I mean, cripes, that's exactly what the Doctor is in Death Comes to Time, a lonely god. You know, of, of course... It still does all the things that are jarring and not canon as well. And I don't mean not canon in a, oh, I didn't like that, so it's not canon, or, hey, that was ambiguous, is it actually canon? I think we can comfortably say Death Comes to Time isn't canon, which is bloody fascinating for a story that had all the real actors in it and was trying to push Doctor Who forward in the face of other things that were going on, like Big Finish and the fact that the McGann Doctor was a thing. And yet they went and made this. <laughs> but I really can't say any more until the spoiler curtain comes down, Dave. No, no. I, th- I think we can say that at best this exists in some sort of parallel or experimental universe. It, it, That's it, fair. it, it does completely erase the telly movie. We can say that, I think. Easily, yes. Uh, and, and so the other point that I just wanted to make here is that you need to appreciate when you listen to this that it was designed as a backdoor pilot. That's right. There was an intent to go on with the series, which is something we'll tease out when we uh, when we get there. Yeah, so I, I felt that that was very important in helping me understand what was going on here. If you watch Backdoor Pilot, something like Assignment Earth from Star Trek or mm-hmm. um, the Office episode The Farm, where suddenly there's no one in the office other than Dwight and we're just on a farm with a whole bunch of new, apparently regular characters that have randomly turned up in our show. Like, <laughs> unless you know they're backdoor pilots, you don't work out what they're going on. They, they always feel very weird because mm. they're, they're, they're backdoor. And, and this had that feeling. Um, the final point I want to make before we sort of go into spoilers and talk about the plot is it's written by someone called Colin Meek. Yes. And I thought, I've never heard of this guy. I want to learn more about him. So I started searching. And <laughs> there's there's a reason for that. And there's Dave. a reason, yes, because <laughs> as I have the quote in front of me, Colin Meek was a pseudonym used by Dan Friedman to write Death Comes to Time. Friedman yeah. has stated the reason for using the pseudonym was, quote, probably just cowardice. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very interesting thing we're about to dive into. Uh, I'm ready to dive in. I'm ready to dive into. Let's bring that spoiler curtain down. Now, Rob, like we did with Lundborough, we're going to do a bit of a plot summary back and forth so that those people who've never heard of this before know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, And it saves you listening to the audios for three hours if that's something you don't want to do. Yeah, this worked well with Lungbarrow, I think. People who had never read that liked our description of it, so let's let's try it again. And if you don't want to listen to the full plot or you want to go in spoiler-free, pause us now, go listen to it, and then come back for our thoughts. <laughs> we'll see you then. See you in three hours. <laughs> right, I'll kick off. General Tannis destroys the city of Anet. This is the first stage in the Canisian invasion of the Santine Republic. The Seventh Doctor and his companion Antimony arrive on Santini. The Doctor helps the anti-Kinesian resistance. Suddenly, nearby bushes catch fire, but the Doctor isn't worried. 
It's just someone trying to contact him. Meanwhile, a being identifying himself as a god of the fourth appears on a spaceship to rescue a prisoner. That prisoner is Ace. He tells her that he is Chasmus and that she was rescued so that she could learn. The Doctor and Antimony travel to the Temple of the Fourth on the planet Mycen Island, where they see the statues of long-dead Time Lords. They see an inscription. We serve the many until the many are one, until twilight falls and death comes to time. Yes, a Time Lord called the Minister of Chance arrives with a message for the Doctor. It was he behind the burning bushes on Santini that led them to Mycen Island, and he explains that two Time Lords... Antonor and Valentine have been murdered on Earth. The minister travels to Santini to replace the Doctor with regard to helping the resistance there, whilst the Doctor sets out to investigate what has happened to the saints on Earth. Yes, this leads the Doctor to a radio telescope where the saints Antonor and Valentine were working, but have been killed by vampires working for General Tannis. Both the vampires are dispatched, and we learn that one has already reported back to Tannis on how rich the Earth is in resources. While all this is going on, we are privy to a range of lessons Chasmus is teaching Ace. Also, while all of that is going on, we see the Minister of Chance helping the Resistance on Santini. The Doctor makes plans to strike back at Tannis by making trouble on Alpha Canis for him via the Premier, Bedlow, whilst the Minister keeps Tannis busy on Santini. This backfires, unfortunately, with Bedlow and Tannis making a new deal, and Tannis revealing himself to be a Time Lord. He also reveals that Antimony is an automaton, shooting him in various body parts, concluding with his head, while the Doctor watches on, seemingly unwilling to use the great powers Tannis knows him to possess. Later, Tannis is talking to a subordinate about the powers the Minister possesses too. He tells the story of dropping a plague bomb on a planet, but no one died. When he investigated the planet further, he found people worshipping the Manister, suggesting the Minister has been using the kinds of powers the Doctor refrains from using. Yes. Ace is brought to the cave of the Kingmaker, an old woman who watches over the Time Lords. She gives Ace a test to be sent to Anima Persis. She must restore the planet to its rightful inhabitants without abusing new powers at her disposal following Chasmus's training. Chasmus gives Ace a wand that has the ability to manipulate time, but with a warning not to use the wand. On Anima Persis, Ace tells the locals she is a Time Lord, and she is there to reclaim their planet. A girl called Megan offers to guide Ace and takes her to a crater. There, Ace imagines the dead spirits who have claimed the planet but want to take her TARDIS and spread universal terror unless Ace gives Megan to them. Ace uses her Time Lord powers to destroy the spirits. Later, Ace wakes within her TARDIS, despondent that she wiped out the villagers in her attempt to save Megan and destroy the dead spirits and has misused her Time Lord powers on her very first mission. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Chasmus is visited by Tannis, who has come to kill him. Tannis says he has eliminated the other Time Lords and set the Doctor and the Minister against each other. Chasmus reveals Ace has been transformed into a Time Lord, but Tannis laughs at him, and he says he will destroy her too. Chasmus says the age of the Time Lords has passed, and expresses pity for Tannis. 
The doctor, meanwhile, goes to Mount Plutarch to plead with the kingmaker, but she will not interfere with Tannis's actions. He is utterly evil, but has broken no laws of time, only amassing power through the use of conventional force. The kingmaker tells the doctor that Tannis is not responsible for the damage to time. It is, in fact, the Minister of Chance who is the cause, as we learned earlier with the example of him saving the planet, which now worships the Manister. Yes, the Doctor is now charged with the responsibility to destroy his friend, the Minister. The Doctor first goes to Casmus's garden to be reunited with Ace. They mourn Casmus's death, and the Doctor reassures Ace about Anima Persis. There have been no living beings on that planet for centuries, and it was actually an illusion. She has yet to develop full Time Lord powers. Ace produces Casmus's wand by way of retort, but the Doctor shows her it is just a stick. Anima Persis was a test, one that all Time Lords fail, so that the memory of failure stays with them forever as a stark warning. Ace then leaves for Earth to prepare for Tannis, whilst the Doctor must now confront the Minister. The Minister shouts at the Doctor to leave him alone, but he has to pay, so the Doctor uses his power to revoke the Minister's TARDIS, leaving him powerless. At NASA Mission Control, a fleet of spaceships is detected approaching Earth. The US President is informed and receives an ultimatum from Tannis. He must surrender immediately, or a bomb will be dropped on London. The President receives a telephone call from the British Prime Minister, who informs that countermeasures are being taken. To Tannis's shock, a fleet of shuttles emerge from behind the moon. Tannis then receives a message from Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and some of his ships are destroyed. Tannis orders his troops to make a ground assault, and they land near Stonehenge. They move towards London, but are confronted by unit troops. Abandoning his troops to their fate, Tannis seeks out the Doctor. He finds Ace first, and starts to beat her to death before the Doctor finds them. Tannis then baits the Doctor that he dare not use his powers to save Ace, just as he hadn't saved Antimony. With the choice between abusing his powers or leaving Tannis free to abuse his, the Doctor chooses the former, even though it means <gasps> his own death. Declaring himself a god of the fourth, the Doctor unleashes his power, and afterwards he and Tannis are gone. Yes, Ace finds the Brigadier and tells him the Doctor is gone. She returns to the Kingmaker and, conferred with full Time Lord powers, a new age has begun. Dun -dun 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 <laughs> well, Dave, it's bloody bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's, it doesn't feel like an attempt to pick up the show. I guess because it wasn't. It was an attempt to put a full stop on the show and then move on to a whole new production with the characters and the ideas and the, the universe this has created. But as I said, to start off with the telly movies being completely ignored we're back to the seventh doctor and ace as they were in survival basically yes. but let, let's let's talk about the biggest bonkers thing in this all the yeah. time lords are now kind of religious priests with godlike powers who float around the universe testing things and training new time lords and what yeah, I mean, let, let's look at this. I, I get the sense that the Time Lords and Gallifrey are already on the decline and may not be that populous out there, but kind of separate to the Time Lords is this 
extra level of Time Lords, these gods of the fourth. These guys who will go around as men, not gods, as, as penance for something that had happened long ago, and they'll put things to rights. They won't use their immense powers because that that's against the rules. And that's really the crux of the whole story. We see it in Ace's training, you know, mm. don't use your powers. We see it at the end of the story where the Doctor, you know, you're not going to use your powers. Zap, he uses his powers. As an alternate sort of background to the Doctor, fleshing out that he's, you know, I'm more than just another Time Lord, I can sort of go with it. I find it interesting. I find it an interesting reason to be going around the universe trying to fix things. And, of course, Ace being trained as a Time Lord was something being planned for Season 27 anyway. Yes. It obviously wouldn't have played out like this conceptually, but to see Ace become a Time Lord is a really interesting thing in the story, at least. Yes, I certainly noted that as I was listening to it, because, as our summary demonstrated, that Ace becoming a Time Lord thing is made pretty explicit pretty early on. And I did sort of think, oh, okay, they've, they've latched onto that Cartmel uh, Aramovich idea of, of, of where Ace was going to go. That's really interesting. Uh, the, the point with the Doctor, I think, sums up the best and the worst of Death Comes to Time. You're right, this idea of the Doctor having these extra powers, maybe being more than a Time Lord and all of the rest of that, is a really interesting idea, and I'm glad they did it, and it's interesting to explore. The problem is that it's not done in a way that latches onto the old series, in that it's not a case of, as an audience, we start to learn that this is actually a bit more about the Doctor and that this is stuff he's hidden and it's slowly revealed. It's just something that he has now for this story, and we're all kind of meant to have just known that. Mm. Um, and, and if I can perhaps continue on sort of that point into, 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 the, into a broader thing, there's, again, a lot of really cool, interesting ideas happening in this, but lacking the context of the background, lacking the visuals to accompany them, and, and, and frankly, due to some quite clumsy writing at times, it just... You, you, I spent a lot of time kind of working out what was going on. So one moment, the Doctor's on a planet helping a rebellion. Okay, cool, I'm with that, I'm following that. Yep. Now he's somewhere where something's been murdered by a vampire, and, and, mm. and the vampire... Oh, okay, the vampire... Oh, they're on Earth. And sort of by the time I've kind of got a handle on what that scene is, we're already sort of two scenes later. And there is a confusing thing there. I don't know if this tripped you up as well. It did, it did with me on this re... I was going to say rewatch, re-listen. You think he's working with a policeman, Speedwell, to investigate the vampires, but then Speedwell is reporting back to what is obviously Unit and in fact appears later in that unit battle. Yeah, absolutely. So he's actually unit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So characters sort of turn up. And, and again, if you've got the, the, the visual in front of you and you go, okay, that's a character dressed like that, that would help. We, we didn't have that. And, and the audio doesn't give you that. So yeah, there was a lot of that contextual stuff that was very, very unusual. Um, and, and, and swapping between scenes at a very fast rate of knots. Mm. For example, you get scenes of the Admiral and captains and, and the like bombing various planets it's not always obvious and sometimes it's really not obvious which planet they're bombing and like which part of the story this relates to are they bombing the planet with the resistance on it are they bombing earth are they bombing the planet where ace is and you need to kind of pull that together that background just isn't there and as much as i sometimes like to mock the big finish really obvious dialogue sometimes mm -hmm. that sets things up when it's not there i really missed it 
Yeah, look, and one thing I will say before I get to my next point is that over the years, people have taken the the images off the animation, married it up to the audio, and put it up on YouTube. So there are several different versions of Death Comes to Time on YouTube that work to varying degrees where you can actually listen to this and see the images too, if that uh, helps you out there, dear listener. I would highly recommend it doing that way if you have the ability to. I, I wish I had. Yeah. Now, look, I mentioned, you know, the concept of the gods of the fourth and how that was kind of interesting. And you could almost call that, you know, the the good part of the story because I, I did sort of a column of good stuff and bad stuff. When you get to the bad stuff, however, I mean, where do you start, Dave? I, I mean, what were they thinking? We've got an eighth doctor at this point in time. He was on telly back in 96. He has ongoing audio adventures in Big Finish at this point in time. He has a whole range of BBC novels. But in this audio, we're going back to Sylvester. We're going to make Ace his replacement and kill him off. And then it's meant to be the finale to the classic series. And it instantly can't be canon, as we were sort of hinting at earlier, because fandom knows that the Doctor progressed beyond Sylve. They saw Sylve bloody regenerate into Paul on screen. It happened. It's a fact. I mean, if they were trying to do this in the early 90s, or at worst, at the end of the NAs, you know, if the BBC had no interest in taking things forward, maybe this could have worked properly. But even then, I don't know when people have watched and adored this character for decades, the Doctor, that they'll suddenly say, oh yes, we'll, we'll just put him to one side now and we'll just have a whole new character. I don't see that working. So I do wonder whether, because his body's not found at the end of the piece, whether he wouldn't have come back at some point. I think that if we take this as being a standalone alternate universe story, the idea of what would cause the death of the Doctor or what would motivate the death of the Doctor is a really interesting thing to explore. And mm. and that concept of him giving his life to bring peace to the universe, to bring balance to the Force, to save his companion, sort of all coming together, is a neat idea. Um, yeah. And I think that... It's one that was really fun to explore. And, and that, that probably was the part of the ending that worked better for me uh, compared to some other stuff. So I, I quite like that, as I say, as this artifact of experimentation. It's interesting. Mm. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work in the big history of the show. Uh, and, and it's not that great. But it is interesting to kind of see, well, let's play with that idea. Yeah. Yeah, so the, <laughs> I'm just looking down at my notes and I'm trying not to be negative as I talk well, about well, this. Well, can, because... can I talk about something that's neither negative or, or positive, but more of an observation? Okay. And th- again, I'm talking about this being a, a a layer of time. You know you know when you cut down into the, the layers of the ice and you see all the different eras and all the rest of it? And you know, mm-hmm. th- we're looking at this. And I think what it showed to me is how little influence Doctor Who around the 40th anniversary really was having on pop culture and and all the things that were because when this wasn't feeling like Doctor Who it was feeling a lot like Babylon 5 even down to the the, the, the imagery of the one um, there mm. was there was some Buffy imagery in there there was some Harry Potter imagery in there remember Harry Potter was first published four or five years before this and what was really big and, and the whole stuff with the wand I thought someone's been reading Harry Potter um, yeah. I'd, Battlestar Galactica I think was just on the horizon at this point and, and again there's a lot of feeling of that sort of thing going on so so this feels like 
2001-2002, which was very Dr. Light. Yeah, and and there's quite a liberal dose of history in there as well, with Tannis bringing his army into the city and having a sort of a triumph. It's very Julius Caesar at that point. It's, it's just ripped from the history books, basically. Y- yes, it is. And there's, there's lots of contemporary contemporary references that really threw me um, because we've been going through this real futuristic stuff with space fleets and godlike powers and planet hopping and vampires and all that sort of stuff and suddenly we're into like the US presidents calling Tony Blair to like talk about stuff and it's like (laughs) okay okay um have we completely changed genres and just as i'm going okay well we're going hardcore contemporary earth brigadier lethbridge stewart is leading a fleet of spaceships into battle yes and and announces himself yes and uh, i think he just says i'm the brigadier (laughs) it's something like (laughs) that (laughs) as if there's only one yeah which (laughs) i am i am the brigadier which again and and I i hope i'm not laboring a point here but that idea of rooting things into the, the 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 now the moment was very big at that stage. I mean, we're into um, Independence Day stuff, where alien invasion is seen through the prism of the president of the United States. It it, mm. it it again, it feels like that era of television and movies. Yeah. Now, now look while while you've been talking, I, I did pick out something that I think could could be a positive to talk about. And that's Stephen Fry as the Minister of Chance. Well, let's just talk about the whole casting because the casting sure. is spectacular. Stephen Fry being one of many, but start with Stephen Fry, yes. Stephen Fry, through all of this, acts so doctorish. He's he's almost f- filling the Doctor's role. Well, he is technically because the Doctor was helping the the Resistance out on Santini, and then the Stephen Fry character, the Minister of Chance, goes there to take over. So he is literally doing the Doctor's role. But even the way he acts is very similar. And I thought this is actually very clever because if he is a God of the Fourth and the Doctor's a God of the Fourth, this is just how all gods of the Fourth act. They get around as mortal men, fixing things. So they all act essentially the same. So when we say the minister is acting like the doctor, well, the doctor's also acting like the minister because they all act like each other when they're these gods of the fourth. And I thought, oh, that's that's kind of good. Yeah, absolutely. And it does, again, allow this sort of experimentation in that what Stephen Fry is basically doing is, it, it's not quite what if the doctor was the doctor but a bastard. It's what if the doctor was the doctor but his morality was just a bit differently skewed. Yeah, and not even radically so, because I don't think the minister thinks he's a bad dude at all. No, no. As I say, he's just played as somebody who has just a, yeah, just a, a different tweak, a different spin on morality, and how the Doctor would look if that's what happened. It's, it's a really interesting performance, and, and Stephen Fry is clearly having a lot of fun doing it, and I think he's decided he is the Doctor for this one. Yeah, essentially. It's, it's very strange how everyone's all split up at the start, like, you know, Ace is off on this spaceship where she gets picked up by Chasmus. We don't know why she's on that spaceship, I don't think. The, the Seventh Doctor is with Antimony. Again, I thought, is this a character from the, the Dwim comics? Who is this? It was just made up for this story, this automaton that the Doctor has made his ideal companion, and it's this, you know, sort of strange automaton who doesn't actually know it's an automaton. No, and he's apparently entirely dispensable. <laughs> Indeed, he gets shot in the head, and the doctor doesn't do anything. Yeah, that's that. That was a bizarre 
seeing because you're sort of suddenly having this revelation that this companion that we're sort of going, okay, I guess he's the companion, right? Okay, let me factor that in. Oh, he's now an android. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. And oh, the android's not aware that he's an android. Okay, we're, we're doing that. You know, do androids dream of, dream of electric sheep? Okay, yeah, but oh, no, they've killed him. Yeah. He's got, it's like part three and no, he's he's been shot. Okay, I guess I wasn't meant to care about him then. Yeah, very disposable. Um, speaking of disposable, as I said, really big name cast in some ways. Uh, Jacqueline Pierce gets... I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> one scene? Not many. <laughs> it's only one or two scenes. Anthony Stewart Head, who doesn't sound a lot like Anthony Stewart Head. No. Um, but but again, this is peak, you know, Anthony Stewart Head imperial phase period. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't get a lot to do either. No, no, that's that's right. It's it's really John Sessions as General Tannis who gets to do most of the acting. Casmus uh, has a fairly big role, Leonard Fenton. John, John Sessions, I honestly thought, was Julian Glover for a long time. Really? Yep. I, I double-checked a couple of times to see that Julian Glover wasn't in this. He's having a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> he is absolutely chewing the scenery. If you like that kind of thing, uh, tune in for John Sessions in this. But also John Colshaw is in it. Um, and, of course, he's a man of many voices. He plays three different characters, some of them quite minor. And, and, and none of them overtly John Colshaw characters either. No. No, no, he's not doing like Tom Baker impressions or anything like no, that. No, no, no. It, it was it was actually a very, very, very good job he did because I didn't recognise him at all. Mm, exactly, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, Nicholas Courtney. So you see all these names in it. Oh, and 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 Timony, we should mention was Kevin Eldon, which is a well-known uh, comic over in the UK. It's quite a cast to pull together for something as weird and odd and going nowhere as Death Comes to Time is. Yeah, I mean, the Brigadier, I think, is brought in to legitimise the death of the Doctor, mm. which is an interesting thing to do, but but really doesn't feel like the character that we know at all. Ace is probably one of the highlights of this, though. I think Sophie Aldred moves into the character again very well. She feels like a slightly older Ace. One of the advantages of this being 2001 is that both Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred still sound like we remember them sounding like. Oh, yeah. So it is really lovely just to hear those younger voices again and see them slip into the characters. And and I liked I liked the Ace plot. I liked the way that it was teaching her morality through experience and through tests. And that evolving of the Ace character was really interesting but because this is death to, comes to time, it was at the same time wacky and bizarre because suddenly Ace is just a Time Lord now because she is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with the training. In, in theory, the stuff she was being shown was quite cool, although some of it was a bit like stuff you'd read in a fortune cookie that Casmus was saying to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. A bit, bit mystical, you know, a bit fortune cookie, and then she'd learn something. But... Yeah, it makes me wonder how they would have shown her becoming a Time Lord on the show, though. Possibly not in this much detail. Possibly, oh, we're shipping her off, and next thing we see her in the robes, and she's a Time Lord. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I think they would have done something of this nature. There would have been the trials, or the tests, or, or, or something with a with a twist. But yeah, it's a... It, it, it was the part that I was most engrossed with, I think perhaps in part because of Sophie Aldred, mm. but also in part because that was a very linear 
peace and Chasmus is always explained to Ace what's happening next and what's going on or what just happened. So it was actually much easier to follow. It was a nice, well-explained linear plot in between the Doctor just jumping around planets and times and locations and different fleets, all very kind of um, non-linear. So look, all told, Dave, this feels very... Although I know it's from the early 2000s, it does feel like 90s sci-fi, sometimes devoid of a Doctor Who influence, and it is deeply weird. Is is that the best way to, to leave our listeners on this? It is very late 90s, 2000s sci-fi. Yes. As I said, it's got a lot of those influences. And if you're someone of that era, I think you'll get a lot out of picking those influences and just seeing where these things have come from. I come back to what I said. It's not a very well-written or constructed script, but it is a fascinating one to dive into and just appreciate how unconnected from the saga Doctor Who was at this point. And it was an era where really you could just do anything because no one one cared. Yeah, it's remarkable. It really is. (laughs) I've got a funny story to end on, Dave. Late last year or early this year, I decided to do Death Comes to Time, and I even wrote this cryptic tweet at the time. Oh, I've just thought of a podcast topic that I haven't seen tackled very often. (laughs) And I threw it out there, and some of our keener listeners were intrigued. But I didn't say what it was, and we sort of talked about it in the background, and then we moved into pre-production a month or so back. But friend of the show, Dylan Rees, and I were chatting, and he said, oh, we're going to do Death Comes to Time as our next time on my show which is the too hot for tv uh, podcast so if folks your appetite has been wet by us taking you through the story and talking about the the story here if you look up too hot for tv actually their latest episode is a death comes to time review so you know one of these things doesn't come along for years and then two come at once it's like a bus <laughs> <laughs> dylan's a great friend of the show in fact dave later this year when you're uh, on holidays he'll take over co-hosting with me for a month so oh fantastic i'm we'll look forward to being a listener for that one and as dirk gently says everything's connected his co-host on that death comes to time episode is ian martin who is a co-host on the all of time and space podcast that we were recently on so everything in this doctor who podcast world is connected fantastic (laughs) well rob we've done death comes to time we have but death has not come to the podcast we still have some listener emails to get through would you like to kick us off with one that came in today i believe it did come in today neilers neilers c on twitter uh from northern ireland he's come in just at the last minute he says what about you fellas happy easter i listened to your review of legends of the sea devils on my morning run And thought I'd give my sixpence, so to speak. Hope you don't mind. In my opinion, this hasn't been a strong era for Doctor Who at all, and much of the criticism it receives is fully warranted. However, that being said, I really enjoyed this story. It was a standalone adventure with a basic plot, more or less chasing around after monsters, etc. But honestly, I thought it worked. The Sea Devil's design was superb. I liked the nods to the original classics, such as their scream and the Doctor's line, When I met you before in the future, great line, and the fact only the leading sea devil spoke. I wasn't expecting a classic, but I was pleasantly surprised. It was fun, fresh, and entertaining. I'd give it an eight. 
Maybe I'm sentimental because they're my favorite ever monster, or maybe I've lowered the benchmark, so to speak, because as I said, it's not been a particularly strong era, in my opinion, of course, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Last but not least, when I heard the line, rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated, all I could think of was Avon in Blake 7. For anyone that doesn't know what that is, go check it out. Anyhow, there we go. Cheers, fellas. Have a nice day from Neela's C. Thank you for that. I absolutely got the uh, the Avon reference there, and I know what his next line was, and it's a very good one. Check it out. Rumors mm. of death. A number of people I've seen now have echoed a comment that I made about Legend of the Sea Devils, yes. which is, were this just episode seven in a 10-episode season, it would have been a very acceptable, very fun little romp. And I think a lot of the negativity has come from the fact that after a long wait and with a long wait to come, this is it. Mm. Uh, and maybe if it hadn't been called a special, um, it wouldn't have come loaded with some some um, some weight that it couldn't live up to, perhaps. Yeah, if it was middle of the series, fine. Yeah. Story of the week. Yeah, yeah and, and I think it will settle into its place over time and, and find a place there. Okay. Our next email is from John Shaw. He writes, Hi, guys. Thanks for the two podcasts that dropped over the bank holiday weekend. Primary Sources was very cool and a great insight for a long-time fan who started watching in the 70s live on a Saturday night to hear the take that newer fans like Alicia have on the show and how you Australians got to experience the show. I love that Alicia's first full classic was a Colin Baker and that made old Sixie her doctor. Rob, we have to get you to sing the podcast theme from now on frenetically. (laughs) Oh dear. <laughs> Your hot take took 33 minutes to say, good idea, short, weak script with bits missing, sort of okay, done with a bit of a blended mess with the premise that the next episode is going to be a good one. Honest. <laughs> yep, I think that's fair. Yeah. Looking forwards in anticipation. New Doctor prediction time for me is Mark Chernock, best known as Marlon from Emmerdale here in the UK. Why do I think this? He can act. With over 2,000 episodes of Emmerdale, he has... Oh, my God. That's a lot. It is. How often is Emmerdale screen? Is that a weekly or a a five-night-a-week thing? Must be hourly. (laughs) I don't know. I've never seen a minute of Emmerdale. No. With over 2,000 episodes of Emmerdale, he has had to portray every emotion and has done so brilliantly. He has the ability to play fun, comic, quirky, and light, then turn to the darkest places imaginable. Physically, Mark is tall, thin, white male, who has an expressive face and can play awkward very well, so rightly or wrongly, this will tick a safe box for some. It looks like Mark is leaving Emmerdale. His character has had a massive stroke. His portrayal of the experience in the aftermath has been outstanding, but I don't think a primetime soap will run the full recovery time, so it's more likely his character will move away for specialist treatment, leaving the door open for him to return. And what started me on this train of thought? A post on Instagram from RTD saying how well Emmerdale does this type of story. Mark's about to bow out after 26 years, 2,000 plus episodes, or in short, a working actor is leaving. So why leave now? A dream role coming his way too big to say no to? I am probably way off on this one and will now go back to hoping for my longtime top pick, Mr. Sean Pertwee. Thanks again for all the great content. Till next time, I've been John Shaw. Wow. 
Well, like you, Dave, I've never seen Emma Dale, and I haven't even seen Mark Sharnock, a picture of him, so I might have to look him up now. Uh, yes, I will be doing that, absolutely, and um, thanks for the idea. It's good to have one out, out of the box. Absolutely. Finally, I have an email here from Mark Douglas. Now, listeners won't know Mark Douglas from a bar of soap, but Mark was the local Doctor Who fan club president in my local area when I was a teenager. <laughs> he, he was a teenager himself. Uh, he now lives in the UK and we talk from time to time and we've been talking about Doctor Who of late. He likes listening to the show. And he's done something very interesting, which he has written us a very, very long email about. He asked if he could edit it for me. I said, no, I'm going to read the whole thing. So listeners, get yourself a cup of coffee. Dave, throw in your own comments as I read, because this will be a long one. I'll need some uh, interjections from you from time to time. Absolutely. But stick around, because we're going to be announcing what seasons will be in our poll for our season deep dive next month at the end of the show. Yes. So stay tuned. Anyway, Mark says, hi, guys. I was recently reminiscing with Rob about the good old days and fandom back when we first met in the 80s, and I happened to mention going to Bedford Who Charity Con 7. Knowing Rob is a big Cyberman fan, I sent him some photos from the convention, including an autograph of David Cyberleader Banks I thought he would enjoy seeing, and he asked if I would like to share my thoughts about the day. Back in the 80s, I regularly attended the Australian Doctor Who fan club parties held at Sydney University. They were a lot of fun and I have many fond memories of those days. I stopped going after the show ended, however, and through the 90s, with no new episodes of Doctor Who being produced, I moved into Star Trek fandom. Star Trek The Next Generation was massive at the time, going from strength to strength. At one point, there were three different Star Trek shows on TV at the same time. It was an exciting time to be a fan, and it gave me the same buzz I had from Doctor Who fandom in the 80s. I was just going to say, I remember that well, because we had new episodes of TNG and DS9 once a week, and they repeated all of original Trek at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I remember that well. Good times. Fast forward to now, and my son Zach has become a big Doctor Who fan, often out-geeking me with his knowledge about the show. We love watching the new series together, and John Pertwee quickly became his favourite classic Doctor after watching many of the original series episodes. Oh, you'll be proud of that too, Dave, I think. Yes, excellent choice. (laughs) That was your childhood choice, I believe. It was, it was. Yeah. I had been thinking recently about how much I enjoyed conventions when I was younger and wanted to share with Zach the fun of going and immersing ourselves in Doctor Who for the day. I realised that, apart from the massive 50th anniversary held in London back in 2013, I hadn't been to a Doctor Who event in over 30 years. Until now. Bedford Who Charity Con brought back memories of the 80s Doctor Who parties for me, and in many ways the two were similar. This was a smaller event, run passionately by fans of the show. Lots of the attendees were dressed in costumes, including Zack, who went as the 13th Doctor. There were different props and memorabilia on display. Plenty of merchandise was for sale in the dealer's room. Interesting guest panels were held, and we had opportunities for autographs, and there was a great love of Doctor Who from all attending. A few differences stood out for me, the main one being just how many guests were at this event. In Sydney, we would be lucky to have one or possibly two guests at some of the parties. Bedford Who Charity Con had 11, including two doctors and a companion. 
The other main difference from my early fan days was the lack of a video room. Back when I was a young fan going to conventions, I really looked forward to seeing some episodes of Doctor Who, either the latest ones straight from the UK, which would not be on Australian television for months or even years, or some old black and white episodes last screened before I was born. In a world where all of Doctor Who is available on demand now, there just isn't the need for video rooms at modern conventions. Although I love that I can watch any episode anytime I fancy it, I do miss that thrill of watching something rare with a room full of fans. I just want to say I agree with that so much. I remember the video rooms at meetings and at cons and they just had some extraordinary stuff on. It was, yeah. And, and yeah, discovering it with fans was just yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I think watching some episodes with fans, it's a completely different experience to at home. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly brand new stuff. Yeah. Very much so. Anyway, the guests. The headline guests were Colin Baker and Sophie Aldred. I was very excited to see them, and they did not disappoint. Despite being veterans of the convention circuit, they were really happy to be there and had a genuine affection for the show and its fans. Sophie was just great, so full of enthusiasm, just like she was when she played Ace. During the main panel, she grabbed a microphone and jumped off the stage into the crowd so they could ask questions of the guests. This included taking a question from my son, Zach, and I had a moment where it sunk in just who was standing in front of me holding a microphone so he could ask his question. Nice. Yeah, I think that's very cool. Colin Baker was the first Doctor I watched on TV after becoming a fan, and so he holds a special place in my heart. In person, he was an absolute gentleman and very entertaining. At one point after meeting us during the autograph session, he saw Zach in the foyer, spoke to him by name, and handed him a bunch of Doctor Who magazines he'd been sent. He said he'd been looking for someone worthy to receive them. It was such a little thing for Colin to do, but created a moment that Zach will remember for years to come. I also enjoyed having a laugh with Colin about how to pronounce H properly when spelling. It's H, not H. And agreeing that we were both pedants when it came to language. Another fun moment we shared that I will remember for many years. I, I can say that Colin Baker and Sophie Aldred would be both right at the very top of my list of Doctor Who actors that I've met and are absolutely lovely wonderful people so yeah big agreement from me there yeah and what a story i mean i can just imagine colin baker you know saying to young zach i was looking for someone you know in the, in the doctor voice i was looking for someone worthy yeah know, absolutely for, for i can see him doing it. yeah 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 bloody sure. hell yeah great about a week or so before the convention it was announced that joe martin the fugitive doctor would be coming i absolutely love her as the doctor suddenly my excitement about the event dramatically increased Originally, just coming for the autograph session, Joe arrived a bit early and joined one of the guest panels. She was amazing. We learned she has always been a big fan of the show, pretending to be the Doctor when she was a little girl, and wrapping her cousins in tinfoil to turn them into Daleks. Back then, her cousins used to tell her she couldn't really be the Doctor because she was a girl. How times have changed. Wow. Yeah. During our autograph session, we talked to Joe some more about the barriers she has broken through and how important it was for her to be asked to play the Doctor as a woman of colour who was not a size six or in her early 20s. It was a very genuine, special moment and another that we took away from the day. The other guest I found particularly interesting was Roger Murray Leach. 
and his talk about designing for the show during the 70s. Something I hadn't considered until now was just how influential he has been on the show, designing the look of Gallifrey, for example, in The Deadly Assassin. The Time Lord costume design from that show is still being used today, almost 50 years later. He also designed the forest in The Planet of Evil, which despite being studio-bound, I still feel creepy today and absolutely terrified me as a little boy. Very, very fair. Yeah. The day passed quickly, and after a final photo session in front of the TARDIS with all of the guests, a tradition at these events, we left a bit early, just missing seeing Julian Bleach, the new Davros, who had been stuck on the M25 for hours trying to reach the convention. Oh. Some other highlights of the day. The focus on fundraising for the local Bedford Food Bank charity. This really sets this convention apart from other ones with all of the guests donating their time for the day. A total of £10,000 was raised. Being greeted by a Dalek and a Cyberman when we first arrived. A great start to the day. Hearing Sophie as Ace call the sixth Doctor Professor during a small comedy sketch written for the day and David Banks auditioning as a companion in the same sketch after giving the best and most overacted performance, turning out to be the master, complete with an <laughs> evil laugh. Oh, nice. Yeah. All in all, a thoroughly enjoyable day, and in particular, a great way for me to revisit fandom after all these years. Thanks, guys, for giving me the chance to share the day with you. I enjoy your podcast immensely, and despite knowing Rob for years, I have only recently discovered it. I, I do hide my light under a bushel, Mark. You're <laughs> quite right. I'm shy and retiring. I have been making up for lost time by working my way through your extensive back catalogue, as well as starting Dave's Blake 7 podcast with the Goodies podcast to shortly follow. Oh, fantastic. That's great. <laughs> yeah. All the best and take care from Mark. Mark, thank you for taking the time to write in with all of that. That was really interesting to hear. Yeah, and while I was reading that, Mark, I was thinking back, this is the guy I met in 1987 at the local library, and now he lives in the UK and goes to Doctor Who conventions and writes to my podcast about it. Life is weird. Life is weird. And connected. And it's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. connected. <laughs> uh, very quickly, Rob, have you been watching anything of note in the last month? Dave, I've just watched Elite Season 5, which I guess I've been plugging to you for five seasons now. Uh, I guess so. Yes. Uh, I also got on a bit of a kick from that, and the guy who created Elite, Carlos Montero, made another uh, Netflix series, a limited series, just eight episodes, called The Mess You Leave Behind, which is based on a novel he wrote. It's kind of like Elite insofar as it's set in a Spanish school, but it's more about the adults and it's not very glitzy and glamorous because it's set in Galicia, which I think is a, a poorer area of Spain. Mm. And it's about students being horrible to teachers and a teacher actually suicides. But then it spirals into something a lot bigger. There's something going on in the town. It's a thriller, basically. So, uh, yeah, I've been on quite a Spanish kick of lately on Netflix. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, as I said earlier in the podcast, I've mainly been watching Old Comfort television but i have been sticking very much with the new season of picard uh for the most part enjoying that although episode seven what was that about i um, haven't watched it yet but i've seen people saying what the hell about it so i don't know what they mean oh please let us know when you do watch it okay i'd love to know what you make of it All right. uh, but i uh, look otherwise enjoying that so that's been a lot of fun now, Rob, you mentioned it earlier in the episode, but I just want to make it explicit here. Yes. We did turn up together as a team and guested on the All of Time and Space podcast. We did. 
where we got to discuss the War Machines yes. in a lot of depth. So I had a lot of fun doing that. It's a really fun podcast. Uh, if you like listening to us, please do check that out. So that's the All of Time and Space podcast, the War Machines episode. Very good episode. Now, next month, we are due to do another deep dive into a season or series mm. of Doctor Who. We decided that on this occasion, we would be completely broad in what the choice would be, and we would make two nominations each as usual, but we agreed we would each nominate a classic season yes. and a new Who series. So, Rob, what is your classic season that you are nominating for a listener vote? Ray Casement, this is for you. I am nominating season 13 from Classic Who. Uh, excellent. Well, I'm going to nominate season one from Classic Who. Oh, gosh, that's a lot of episodes to watch. Not as many as three. <laughs> Which new Who series are you nominating? A slight cheat, Dave, which I've attempted before and it didn't come off, so we'll try it again. The 2008 to 2010 specials. So that's The Next Doctor, Planet of the Dead, Waters of Mars, and The End of Time. Fair enough. I'm nominating Series 7A. Oh, that's brave of you. Well, we'll see what the listeners pick. Interesting, because you're not a fan of that, I don't think. Uh, it's better than season six. Yeah, true enough. <laughs> uh, so we have picked there season one, season 13, the Tenant Specials and series 7A. By the time this goes out, that poll will be up on our Twitter feed. Listeners, there'll be a week to vote for it. Please, again, vote not for the one you think is best, but the one you think will have the most interesting conversation. Exactly. And Ray, you can vote twice. <laughs> Fair enough. So look, that's our chat about all things Doctor Who. We started with Legend of the Sea Devils. Yes. We ended with Death Comes to Time. We've covered a lot. We hope you've enjoyed it. Something a bit different. We'll be back to a season deep dive next month. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>